love kindles, ignites, and explodes in a tale by Sigrid Nunez. And Simon Rich imagines love before fire is invented. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Stick around for a show about the world's oldest story, told in fresh new ways. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Reading is such a private activity, but I love hearing a performance that makes it a truly shared experience. That's why I'm excited to bring you these stories on Selected Shorts. On this program, we travel down the rocky road to love. In one story, young lovers ignite and burn out, observed by older, wiser friends. In the other the origin story of Boy Meets Girl. The two stories play on the cliches of love, undying passion and unrequited love, but in each there's a stylish manipulation of old tropes in new forms. Our first story is This Is It by Sigrid Nunes. Nunes won the National Book Award for her novel The Friend. Her most recent is What Are You Going Through? Nunes is interested in the interstitial and emotional place that is not quite empathy. This Is It charts the course of a stormy love affair at one remove. An older couple has introduced the pair, and they watch the emotional roller coaster ride with alternating hope and concern. They weigh in from time to time, including offering up Lysander's observation from Midsummer Night's Dream, the course of true love never did run smooth. But they're basically detached, a sensation that the story passes on to us. We, too, watch the couple with a kind of cool and slightly rubbernecking fascination. We needed a performer with grace and emotional ballast for this one, and we turned to our longtime reader, Christina Pickles, an Emmy nominee for her work on St. Elsewhere and Friends. Film credits include The Wedding Singer and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Here's her reading of This Is It by Sigrid Nunes. This is it. Two people we know have fallen in love. It is the kind of romance the world tends to smile on. He and she both are young. He is handsome, she is pretty, and both are well-liked. Although he has had a small drinking problem, and she once had a reputation for being a flirt, these things belong to the past. He is an art historian who teaches at our local college. She runs a daycare center and has published a picture book for children. It was we who introduced them, though they had seen each other before in passing. Ours is not a large town. Neither has ever been married and both would like in good time to have a child. When we are with them, we can see plainly that they are in love. It cannot be our conversation that brings that color to her cheek or the dinner we have served that keeps him tasting his lips. Neither of them is eating very much. Gamely, they try to keep up their end of things, but we know their minds are on something else. If they were alone, they would be leaping across the table at each other. Now and then their eyes meet and we can read the question, can't we leave yet? Love endows him with a certain tousled, reckless air, and she has never looked more lovely. When we have tormented them long enough and let them go, we stand a long time watching them from the porch. 
It is a night of such fine black silk, it could make a dress to be worn with diamonds. In those early days, there are many invitations. His people want to meet her, her people want to meet him, and nice, attractive couples are always in demand. The lovers do not let on how loathsome all this company is to them, how it sometimes feels as if there was a conspiracy to keep them apart. From time to time, they manage to steal a few seconds alone. Out in the garden under the stairs, they refresh themselves with deep drafts of each other. They tell each other that if they do not lie naked with each other soon, they will die. <laughs> Their parents are happy for them. The man and the woman both are around the age generally thought to be ideal for settling down. He and she do not talk about getting married. The mere hint that they might not be together the rest of their lives makes them weep. They know that this is it. During this time, they seem to move against a perpetual sunburst. At the A&P, the aisles they tread are strewn with violets. <laughs> People stare at them as they pass. It tickles us to say that they met in our house. When they're together, some part of their bodies is always touching. If they must be discreet, they will link their pinkies. At the movies, they might as well be in the same seat. They feed each other popcorn, licking the butter off each other's fingers. Don't sit behind them, you'll just have to move. They both like classical music, and when they are together, they will play mostly Schubert and Bach. But when they are apart, they find themselves spinning the radio dial in search of one of those songs that gets it just right. Love hurts. Every time we say goodbye. Always. Only now do they realize that they've never been in love before. Earlier attachments, though they seemed important at the time, are now revealed to have been as moonlight to the moon. Had they but known, much suffering might have been avoided. Night after night, they are up late, telling each other the stories of their lives. The emotions most often inspired by these confessions are pity and indignation. To the lover, the beloved's life is a history of injustice and betrayal. Parents, siblings, teachers, friends, all are seen to have failed the beloved. The same tender grief afflicts them, not to have known the other as a child. They are battered with fears, so many diseases the beloved might catch, so many ways he or she might be hurt. Once, when a traffic jam causes him to be a half hour late, he finds her sobbing on the phone with the highway patrol. <laughs> they are battered, gored, whipped, crushed, gorged, winded, and spent with love. Now they know why the French call it the little death. Our hearts go out to them. Cynics say there is no joy but at the cost of another's pain. And it is true that in this case, not everyone is happy. The young woman knows a man who has been her best friend since high school. He does not like her lover. He won't say why, he just can't stand the guy. The woman becomes angry with her friend. They fall out and she drops him. At the college where the young man teaches, he shares an office with another professor. 
a slightly older woman in the same department who helped him to get his job. The man talks endlessly to her about his new love, the lover's need to hear the beloved's name. <laughs> she listens in silence. Afterwards, she has gone a long time to the ladies' room. <laughs> the man attributes this to a medical condition about which he feels it would be insensitive to ask. The man and the woman let it be known that they are dying to get away. Friends offer the use of their country house, and off they go, two weeks in the mountains. When they return, they lie low for a while. For several weeks, no one hears from them. When finally we see them again, her face is pale. Her hair needs washing, and she has brought cigarettes. Every time she lights another cigarette, she apologizes. He's looking more tousled and reckless than ever. At one point, he asks her to either to stop smoking or to stop apologizing. Please. One night, a few weeks later, we're sitting in our living room thinking of going to bed when there's a knock at the door. It is the young woman in a state. She has walked all the way through the cold without a coat. A strawberry-shaped mark reddens her forehead. Her hand is bleeding. We wrap a sweater around her and get her a Band-Aid. She's sparing with details, and we do not press her. High words, broken glass. To cut herself trying to clean up. Our youngest wakes and toddles downstairs. After we've got him back to bed, we make some tea. While we're drinking the tea, the phone rings. It is the young man in a panic. Shortly after, when he comes to pick her up, she flings off the sweater and runs out to meet him. The next time we see them, they are radiant. They tell us they are thinking of getting married this summer. They know of a couple who eloped and were married on the Isle of Crete. They would like to do something like that, so romantic. The coldest winter in years descends on our town. Summer seems a long way off. On New Year's Eve at our annual party, we toast the engagement with champagne. Another semester begins at the college. The first week of classes, a student brings a complaint against the young man. At 11 o'clock one morning, when the student arrived at his office for an appointment, she smelled liquor on his breath. We hear it first at a faculty meeting. The one of us who is in a position to do so manages to smooth the matter over. Now they are thinking of a more traditional wedding. Crete is too hot in the summer, and they don't have the money to go all that way anyway. They celebrate their semi-anniversary with a weekend in the city. The summer is still a long way off. We pretend to be surprised when we are told that they were heard bickering over coffee in the diner. We are sincerely surprised when we hear about the scene in Ojohn's, which everyone is talking about how he accused her of shaking her ass, her big ass, some reports had it, <laughs> at some guy at the bar, how he threatened the guy and the bartender had to vault over the bar and get between them. She blames his troubles on his drinking. When he drinks, he loses control. He points out that before he was with her, he had not drunk so much as a thimble in three years. She says that's a cop-out blaming her for his problem. But if that's the game he wants to play, who's to blame for her starting smoking again? 
Though we know it is foolish, sometimes we can't help it. We find ourselves taking sides. One of us takes her side, the other takes his, and we argue. A small informal wedding, just family, and of course us. Maybe they could borrow the house in the mountains again for the occasion. The friend from high school is back in the woman's life, much to her lover's resentment. But what does he expect? She has to have someone to turn to. He won't listen to what she has to say. And it is true, the friend is only too willing to listen. Hours and hours he listens to her. His heart charged with pity and indignation. We're just getting up one morning when she arrives with this story. The night before, she had confronted him, determined to clear the air about several matters. They ended up fighting over what had happened at O'John's. He said he didn't want to talk about it anymore. She said he had to talk about it. No, he didn't have to talk about it, he said. He turned off the lights and went to bed. She turned the lights back on again. He got out of bed, turned off the lights, and got back into bed again. She turned the lights on. She told him that as many times as he turned off the lights, so many times would she turn them back on. He got up and went around the room, unscrewing every light bulb from the overhead fixture, <laughs> the bedside lamps, the lamp by the easy chair, even the light in the adjoining bathroom. He put all the light bulbs in a box he got from the closet, not forgetting that bulb, and he took the box to the garage. Then he came back in the house and went back to bed. She went out to the garage. She got the box. She carried the box back into the house and up to the bedroom. She was screwing the first bulb in when he flew at her. And this time, there was no bartender to get between them. We introduced them. We feel responsible. We want to do something, but what can we do? What would you do? Tell them that the first year is the hardest? Quote that bit about the course of true love never running smooth? They decide that what they need is a cooling off period. And the woman arranges to visit a sister who lives in Georgia. The separation is killing. They have agreed not to talk on the phone during this time, and instead they write to each other, let us fraught with tears and metaphors of amputation. <laughs> Their reunion is frenzied. She returns on a Friday, and they don't get up from bed until Monday. What fools they have been. How close they came to losing each other. Spring is finally here and their love is reborn with the Forsythia. Why wait to get married? Why not do it right now at the town hall? The Forsythia is still bright on the bow when the woman makes the discovery. While they were separated, while she was staying with her sister in Georgia, the man had a one-night stand with the art history professor who shares his office. The day the woman makes this discovery, she has to go to work. Right in front of the children, she breaks down. The children stop what they're doing and surround her. They want to know where it hurts. Oh, 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 she cries, hiding her face. 
All over her body she feels a soft rain, the patting of many small hands. For now, the woman is staying with us. The whole house smells of smoke, though when she's here, she mostly keeps to her room. We hear her in there spinning the radio dial until she finds something like Cry Me a River, or Your Cheating Heart, or... Our 12-year-old regards her with a stark contempt. How can anybody get so twisted over a boyfriend? She writes the man a letter full of hate. One day, when she is not there, he comes to see us. He's brought the letter with him, and he wants us to read it, to show us a side of her we do not suspect. He thrusts the letter at us, we demur. He takes the letter back, and he folds it and folds it until it is sharp enough to slice bread. The spectacle of their suffering appalls us. We have never seen either of them so wretched. Every day, it is as if another small wound has opened in them. Now they really know why the French call it the little death. When they were together, she was always trying to get him to see a therapist, and he was always refusing. Now he changes his mind. At his first session, as soon as he sits down in the doctor's office, he feels a prickling in his throat. He had hoped to explain the whole situation in about 50 minutes, leaving time at the end for some solid advice. But all he manages to get out is, I, I, I'm in love. And for the rest of the hour, he weeps. Weeps as he has never wept before, plucking frequently at the tissues the therapist has provided. About ten dollars a tissue, he reckons later. <laughs> the woman drives to the shopping mall to buy supplies for the daycare center. On the way back, she has to pass the house where she knows the art history professor lives. As she approaches the house, she starts trembling all over in the grip of something she has never felt before, something like bloodlust. <laughs> she pulls into the driveway. From the box of supplies she has just brought, she takes a jar of red paint. She gets out of the car and walks up to the house, opening the jar of paint. She dashes paint all over the front of the house. The door opens and her rival stands there agape. A glop of red paint catches her full in the face. At this point, it is hard to say what will happen next. The man and the woman are not speaking to each other. The woman is no longer staying with us. She's moved in with other friends until she can find a place of her own. The man is still seeing a therapist. All the talk in this close little town hasn't done either of them much good. They both are worried about their jobs. We're well into summer now, thus far a mild and rainy one. Close as we are to the situation, we can't say we really understand it. Our own courtship was dogged but tame, never strayed far from the path. We were married 25 years ago in the garden of the house where one of us grew up. Our wedding photo hangs over the fireplace and it will look exactly like what we were, two serious young people getting on with the business of life. We look like the same people today, just a lot older. <laughs> We're aware 
that we are the kind of parents whose children cannot imagine them making love. <laughs> it is also true that we get along better than most couples we know. And that's always been true of us. We don't really know why. We don't have any secrets. We were just lucky, we guess. We have heard the expert's opinion that so many marriages fail because the expectations people bring to the altar are much too romantic. Maybe. Well, how do they measure romantic? At our wedding reception, a certain elderly aunt gave us what she called the best advice you can give newlyweds. Never go to bed mad at each other. It struck us as sweet and banal at the time. And it never occurred to us that we were following it. But now that we look back, we can see that we always have. And yet, we can't imagine giving that kind of homely advice to our young friends. Their love is a different thing altogether. And we are in awe of it. Neither of us has ever known love like that. A rage in the blood, a devastation. We can't honestly say we know what the French are talking about. <laughs> Wagner says somewhere that his Tristan und Isolde was born of the desire to portray the kind of love he himself had never experienced. Maybe something like that lies behind our own desire to see this man and this woman get back together. Just thinking about the way they were, you can start to smell violets. You should see the look on his or her face when you mention the other one's name, like the look you'd imagine on the face of someone whose whole life is flashing before them. Of course, we know that if theirs is the kind of love Wagner was talking about, it cannot possibly end in marriage. Still, we don't want to see it end like this. From time to time, when we feel the moment is right, we ask about the chance of a reconciliation. Though both have assured us that there is no way. It's all over. Fini. End of story. That's it. Christina Pickles performed This Is It by Sigrid Nunez. I'm Meg Wallitzer. There's something really compelling about witnessing from a distance how much joy and damage people can hurl at each other. We almost wind up feeling like a member of the family or at least part of the small community in which the drama unfolds. And maybe there is an invitation to approach love differently, to throw out an old script. When we return a heartsick caveman, you're listening to Selected Shorts, Recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I've got great news. 
After more than 35 years of literature performed live, we've gone from the stage to the page with our new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. Our first tale followed a difficult romance, but you should know we'll never break up with you. You can always find us through our website, selectedshorts.org. There, you can subscribe to our podcast. And please, if you like the show, write us a love letter and let your friends and followers know. We at Shorts have brought you quite a few of Simon Rich's clever and unexpected stories. He's the author of two novels and six humor collections, including Free Range Chickens and his latest New Teeth Stories. For all his playful sass, Rich is interested in love and courtship and marriage. But in his stories, things tend to take a turn for the worse, or at least the undignified. I Love Girl is set in the Stone Age, but the plot is timeless. The kindly narrator Oog has found the girl of his dreams. She's actually called Girl, but she favors his brutish rival. Well, they're all brutish, but you'll hear what I mean. I Love Girl is an encore performance by Michael Ian Black, who just kills it. The comic actor has been seen in series including The State, Viva Variety, Stella, and Michael and Michael Have Issues. He's also a children's book author, which may have helped him find Oog's touching and guileless voice. Here he is with I Love Girl by Simon Rich. I Love Girl. I am Oog. I love girl. Girl loves Boog. It is bad situation. Boog and I are very different people. For example, we have different jobs. My job is rock thrower. I will explain what that is. There are many rocks all over the place, and people are always tripping over them. So when I became a man at age 11, the old person said to me, get rid of all the rocks. Since that day, I've worked very hard at this. Whenever it is light outside, I'm either gathering rocks, carrying them up the hill, or throwing them off the cliff. In the past 10 years, I have cleared many rocks from the ground. People still trip on rocks, but they trip less than before. <laughs> Boog's job is artist. I will explain what that is. When he became a man, the old person said to him, cut down the trees so we have space to live. But Boog did not want to do this, so now he smears paints on caves. He calls his smears pictures. Everybody likes to look at them, but the person who likes to look at them most is girl. I love girl. I will explain what that is. When I look at her, I feel sick like I'm going to die. <laughs> I have never had the great disease, obviously because I'm still alive, but my uncle described it to me. He said, there is a tightness in your chest, you cannot breathe, and you have anger toward the gods because they are hurting you for no reason. I was going to ask him to explain more, but then he died. <laughs> he had been sick a long time almost two days. <laughs> My point is, girl makes me feel this way, like I'm going to die. There are many women in the world, by last count, seven. <laughs> but she is the only one I have ever loved. 
Girl lives on Black Mountain. It is called Black Mountain because one, it is mountain, and two, it is covered in black rocks. Every day, Girl has to climb over the rocks to get to the river. It is too hard. She has small legs and she is often getting stuck. So one day, I decided I will clear a path from Girl's cave to the river. I've been working on Girl's path for many years, picking up the black rocks and carrying them away. I never throw her rocks off the cliff like normal rocks. Instead, I put them in a pile next to my cave. I like to look at the pile because it reminds me of how I am helping Girl. The pile is black and shiny and very big. My mother, who I live with, says it has to go. She does not understand that this is important to me. I worry that she will move the pile, but it is unlikely. After all, she is an elderly 32-year-old woman. I've made good progress on Girl's path, but there are still many rocks left to clear. The job would go faster, but I am building the path in secret by the light of the moon. The reason is, and this is a hard thing to admit, I am afraid to talk to Girl. If she found out it was me clearing all the rocks, I'm sure she would say something to me like, hello, or hi there. And then I would be in trouble. Because the truth is, I am not so good at making words. Boog is very good at making words. For example, last week he showed off his new picture at the main cave. Everyone was expecting it to be a horse or a bear. All his pictures so far have been horses, bears, were a mix of horses and bears. <laughs> but this picture was not of any animal. It was just a bunch of red streaks. People were angry. I wanted animals, the old person said. Where are the animals? It was a bad situation. <laughs> I thought that Boog would lose his job or maybe be killed by stones. But then Boog stood on a rock and spoke. My art is smart, he said. And anyone who does not get it is stupid. <laughs> Everyone was quiet. We looked at the old person to see what he would say. The old person squinted at the red streaks for a while. Then he rubbed his chin and said, Oh yes, now I get it. It is smart. People who do not get it are stupid. A few seconds later, everyone else got it. It is smart, they said. It is smart. The only person who did not get it was me. My beard began to sweat. I was scared, you understand, that someone would ask me to make words about the picture. I headed slowly for the exit, and I was almost out of the cave when Boog pointed his finger at me. Do you like it, Oog? Everyone stopped making words and looked at me. It is smart, I said. I meant for my voice to sound big, but it came out small. Boog smiled. Ah, he said, then why don't you explain it to us? I felt a burning on my skin. It was sort of like when you fall into a fire and your body catches on fire. <laughs> I looked down at my feet and people started laughing at me. I looked up at Girl to see if she was one of the ones laughing. She was not, thank gods. 
but she could hear all the other people laughing, and that was just as bad. I am tired from talking to people who are less smart, Boog said. I'm going to mate with Girl now. He took Girl's hand and started to mate with her. Some people stayed to watch, but most took this as their cue to leave. On my way out, I heard Girl making sounds. They stayed in my head all night, like an echo in a giant, empty cave. The next day, I decided to become an artist. I told my plan to Oog. There are several of us named Oog. I am sorry if it is confusing. And he said, you can't be an artist. It is hard. Oog agreed with him. You're just a rock thrower, he said. Stick with that. I was angry at Oog, partly because he always takes Oog's side, but mostly because I did not agree with his words. Maybe artist is hard job. It's not for me to say, but I would be surprised if it was as hard a job as rock thrower. Throwing rocks is not so easy. For example, five years ago, one of my shoulders detached from my arm when I was throwing a boulder off a cliff. And two years after that, the other shoulder detached also. I can still throw rocks, but now when I throw them, I am screaming. <laughs> not just once in a while, but constantly. Every time I throw a rock, I am screaming so loud. I do not always realize I am screaming. It's just part of my life. Usually, by sundown, I have no voice left. It is gone, you understand, because I was screaming so much from the pain of throwing rocks. Another thing is that sometimes I fall off the cliff, which is a bad situation. I'm going to make a picture, I told the others. A good one. Who are you going to show it to, Oog said. Your mother? Everyone laughed. Oog, Oog, Moog, even Oog. No, I said, I will show it to girl. No one made words after that. I've never spoken to girl, but one time she spoke to me. It was a long time ago when we were still children. It was the first day of school and we were learning to count. It was confusing. I'm very good at some numbers. I understand one and two very well. And I'm okay with three. But when it gets to higher math, four, five, and so on, I get confused. The old person had told us to each make a pile of five rocks. I did not know how many to do and it was getting to be my turn. It was a bad situation. The old person was about to call on me when Girl whispered into my ear. You have too many rocks, she said. You need to take away four. I stared at her. I think she could tell from my eyes that I did not have a great grasp of four. <laughs> it's two twos, she said. I swallowed. To this day, I do not know what she meant by this. <laughs> Don't worry, she said, I will help you. The old person was about to look at my pile when girl stood up and pointed into the forest. Predator! <laughs> By the time we came back from the hiding cave, it was nightfall. 
On the second day of school, we graduated. <laughs> and I got my sheepskin just like everybody else. I wanted to thank girl, but I did not know which words to make. So I said nothing. Girl has a small head, so it is very strange how she fits so many things inside of it. She knows all of the numbers. Six, eight, you name it. But she also knows other things, things nobody else knows. One time, I followed her down to the river. She was hunting fish in the normal way by jabbing a stick in the water. After a long time, she caught a small flat fish. I assumed she would do the normal thing, rip off the head and eat the body. But instead, she did the strangest thing that I have ever seen. She put the stick with the small fish still on it back into the river. A short time later, she pulled the stick out. A bigger fish was on the stick. To this day, I do not understand how girl did this. <laughs> But I have thought a lot about what I saw, how she used the stick to get the small fish and then the big fish. And I have developed a theory. My theory is, she is a witch who knows magic. <laughs> Even though she is probably a witch, I still love her. My mother says that when you love someone, you love them despite their flaws. For example, my father was not so good at hunting after a monster ate his arms. But my mother continued to mate with him because she loved him. Girl must really love Boog because he has many flaws. He never smiles or shares his meat with other people. He is rude to the old person and will not rub his feet. And he isn't very down to earth. <laughs> For example, one day he stood on the big rock and said, I am a living God. Everyone should worship me, for I am a living God. Maybe he is right. I do not know how all that works, but he doesn't have to say it on the rock. <laughs> Boog's worst flaw, though, in my opinion, is that he disrespects girl. It is very subtle. But if you watch them closely, you can tell. For example, sometimes he orders her to mate with him in front of crowds. I know this is his right, he is man, she is woman. But it is the way he orders her to mate that I do not like. He makes his voice big and snaps his fingers. It's like he's talking to a dog. If I owned girl, I would only command her to mate with me in front of crowds if it seemed like she was in the mood to do that. <laughs> Boog has a lot going for him. He's very wealthy, three skins. He's maybe a god, unclear. He styles his hair in the new cool way, wet. He invented art. But I still cannot understand why girl is with him. As my father used to say, there must be other monsters in that cave that we don't know about. I decided to make my picture of horses because I knew that was a thing. It took a long time for many reasons. One, I could only work nights because of rock throwing job. Two, it was my first time making art. And another reason, my mother was watching over my shoulder the whole time. I know she was trying to help me, but some of her words made me feel bad. For example, one time she said, you are bad at this. You should stop because you are bad. 
if girl sees it, she will not like you because the thing you are making is so bad. <laughs> I love my mother and will always rub her feet, but sometimes I think she does not know how to help. <laughs> Finally, after many days of work, I finished my picture. I was about to add my handprint when I heard a familiar laugh in the distance. I turned around. Boog was there. What a smart picture, he said, clapping his hands. You are really smart. I smiled. It was very nice, I thought, for Boog to say nice things about my picture, especially since we are not friends. Thank you, I said. Boog rolled his eyes. I was being sarcastic. A long time passed. I did not know this word, but was afraid to admit so. I am glad you like my picture, I said. Boog cursed the gods under his breath and paced around for a while. The picture is bad, he said, okay? It stinks. I do not like it. I sighed. For the first time, I was beginning to see what he meant. My plan, as you know, had been to show my picture to girl, but I started to become worried that she would not like it. The reviews, so far, were not great. Oog said, it is the worst picture made yet by a human. Moog said, it is proof that you are a dumb person because the quality is poor and also the idea is bad. The old person said, I always knew you were dumb. It is known by everyone. But this picture makes me realize you are even dumber than it was believed. You are like a beast from the woods or a rock on the ground, no brain. One of the main problems, people explained, was that I had not made the right number of legs for the horse. Also, I had made the body too big, so there wasn't enough space for a head. Also, I had given it hands, forgetting that a horse does not have hands. I was proud of the picture when I made it, but people's words had made me ashamed. I decided it was best to destroy it before a girl found out about it. I grabbed some empty bladders and brought up water from the river. I was about to splash the painting when I heard that laugh again. Don't destroy it yet, Boog said. There is someone who wants to see it. He grabbed Girl by the arm and thrust her in front of my picture. It was a bad situation. Tell Oog what you think of it, Boog said. Girl mumbled something, but it was too soft for me to hear. Tell him, Boog ordered. I do not like it, Girl said. You are not smart. I love Boog and not you. I stood there in silence. Hot water came out of my eyeballs. Boog grabbed one of my bladders, wet his hand, and slicked back his hair in his style. Then he walked over to my pile of black rocks, picked one up, and hurled it against my picture. Let's go, he said to girl. She started to follow him. As she was leaving, though, she paused to take a rock from my pile. I was afraid she would throw it at my picture like Boog had, but instead, she held it up to her face and squinted at it. Let's go, Boog shouted. She followed him into the woods, still holding the rock in her hand. My mother woke me in the night. A monster is here to murder us, she said. I nodded. This is usual occurrence. What kind of monster? Wolf? She shook her head. 
It is a clever monster. Listen. We were silent for a while. Soon, I heard a strange sound. The monster was throwing rocks against the cave, one after the other. I took my kill stick and headed cautiously for the door. I saw a figure in the shadows and was about to charge it when the moon appeared suddenly between clouds. Girl? She was standing on the edge of the forest, a black rock in her hand. Sorry if I scared you, she said. I just came to say thank you. I was confused. For what? For building me a path. How did you know it was me? I took a rock from your pile and compared it to the ones on my mountain. They're the same kind. I walked cautiously toward her. Are you a witch? I asked. <laughs> she laughed. I'm not a witch. I just used common sense. I mean, there are thousands of black rocks piled up next to your cave, and they're identical to the rocks that were cleared away from my mountain. It doesn't take a witch to figure out what happened. I looked her in the eyes. If you are a witch, I said, you can tell me. I will guard your secret. She put her hand on my arm. All the hairs on it stood up. Thank you for clearing all the rocks, she said, looking into my eyes. It is a good path. You are good at clearing the rocks. For the second time that night, hot water came out of my eyeballs. Only this time, it was because I was happy. I'm sorry I said those mean things about your picture, girl said. Boog said I had to. I was shocked. That had not occurred to me. <laughs> Boog was very clever. Does that mean you like my art, I asked. She looked at my horse and hesitated. It's interesting, she said. <laughs> but you know what I really like? Your rock pile. She walked over to it. It's sort of like a sculpture. What is sculpture? Like a picture in three dimensions. Much time passed in silence. <laughs> Can I impregnate you, I asked. <laughs> what? I know, I am not smart like Boog. I do not understand the art, and I am bad with the numbers. But I will work hard to clear the rocks for you. And when you have child, I will clear the rocks for the child. I will clear all the rocks for you and the child until I am eaten by a monster or die of the great disease. I will make you many paths so you can go all the places you want. I paused to catch my breath. It was the most words I had ever made at one time. <laughs> what about Boog, she whispered. I thought about it for a moment. I will murder him, I said. <laughs> with a rock. She smiled and kissed me on the cheek. It was like it had been in my dreams. We made many words that night. Girl explained that she had never really loved Boog. He just seemed like her only option. He was the only one who had ever asked to mate with her. The other five men on Earth had been too afraid, including me. I confessed to her that I did not understand Boog's latest picture, and she laughed. No one did, she said, not even Boog. The stars were out, and girl counted them aloud until I fell asleep. The next day, I took a large rock and struck it into Boog's head <laughs> so that his skull cracked open and he died. 
Afterward, girl and I went swimming. <laughs> we have decided to have many children. One, two, maybe even a higher number. <laughs> I love girl. Girl loves me. It is good situation. That was Michael Ian Black's performance of I Love Girl by Simon Rich. I'm Meg Wolitzer. It's really hard to write funny. Funny fiction that's read aloud is helped along by great performers and an audience in the mood to laugh. But the fiction has to have been funny on the page in the first place. This cave chronicle manages to swipe at sexism, chauvinism, and artistic pretension. Also, having grown up on the Flintstones, I'm a sucker for Stone Age humor. Speaking of the Flintstones, Remember the theme song? As a little kid, I thought that that first line, the Flintstones meet the Flintstones, meant that there were two families named Flintstone and they were going to meet each other. I kept waiting for the episode where the Flintstones meet the Flintstones. In fact, I'm still waiting. I caught up with comedian and writer Michael Ian Black to talk about his reading of I Love Girl and much more. Black hosts the podcast Obscure, in which he tackles great works of literature. We talked about great books, and we even played a word game. Here's part of my conversation with Michael Ian Black. I want to talk a little bit about the story that you read, I Love Girl, by yes. Simon Rich. Yes. Right? What yeah, a, it's a wonderful story. It's so funny. Tell me about this story and your experience of reading it and reading it aloud. One of the great things about good humor writing to me is I have this experience kind of more frequently than other people would have it because I'm also a stand-up comedian. So sometimes as a stand-up comedian, you'll write something and you'll think, I think this is funny, but then you present it to an audience and they either confirm or deny that it's funny. And so that was my experience with reading Simon's story. Reading it in my head, I thought, well, this is funny. And then having that confirmation when I read it out loud, what just felt great. The story has a kind of almost stand-up quality to it. Like, it's like it feels mm -hmm. performative in some way. Like, you really, I mean, people say laugh out loud funny, and they don't really mean that. They just mean, I found it funny. Like, people mm -hmm. say to you as a fiction writer, I cried at the end. Like, I want to say, really? Hey, yeah, I don't you think meant you, you felt sad, but it's code. <laughs> it's code. I mean, maybe people cried. I don't know. I have always sort of believed that any praise you get, you cut it in half, and any criticism you get, you cut that in half. Like, you know, we're, we're encouraged, I think, to express ourselves in ways that aren't necessarily accurate when, when, when reacting to something. To say, I loved something. Rarely, I feel like, do I, did I love something? Or I found something hysterical. Rarely do I find something hysterical. Or the phrase like, wickedly funny, which to me just means probably not funny. I know. Or a thing you have to say about books that you might not have loved, like moving and lyrical. <laughs> it's like Mad Libs. <laughs> have you wanted to write a novel? Oh, desperately. I would love to write a novel. Have you done, have you tried? Have you been I, doing it? I have, yeah, I've made stabs at it. And then I get about 20 or 30,000 words in and I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm doing. This is terrible. And then I give up. And I've done that maybe five or six times. I don't know if you want writing novel tips, but. Sure. Sure. Well, one thing I would say, and I, I have something that I sort of jokingly call my 80 page plan that I tell students, which is 
sit down and write something. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to worry if it's publishable or if people will be mad at you or if it's good. Just write anything. And then, I mean, I say 80 pages because that's enough to feel that you've accomplished something, but not so much that you feel you've ruined and wasted your life. Print it out in a new font. New fonts are really helpful. They make it look like a new book. Go sit somewhere. And now you're dealing with not the book that you wanted to write, but the book that you did write. And then you start to know what it is. And I don't know if that's ever going to be helpful, but um, it's sort of how I began. And there's like a freedom at first. Well, I tell you what I love about the idea is using a new font. That just seems so exciting to me. I think that is perhaps the best thing I'm going to say on the show. <laughs> I, I only write in Times New Roman. And no, the, idea, no. the idea then of printing it out in Helvetica or something is just tantalizing. I will just say one more obsessive thing about fonts. Some of them make it look shorter. And then you're like, what? I wrote 50 pages. Why is it saying I wrote 20? Oh, no, that's terrible. Well, the truth is, I think everybody in the arts and even athletes, anybody doing something that involves a lot of focus, a lot of concentration, really needs to make things new. Mm -hmm. Because you get so quickly when you're writing into this kind of sluggish phase. It's the middle. And that can be true, actually, when reading. Do you have that experience at all when reading that you're you're in the middle and you're like, I'm lost, I'm bored. I feel like it's entirely book dependent. Yeah, it is. What about your podcast called Obscure? Tell us about that. I pick a book that I've never read before and have no desire to read, read it out loud and comment on it as I go. The first season was Jude the Obscure, which I had no desire to read. The second season was Frankenstein, which I had an equally no desire to read. And then this season is Wuthering Heights, which I had no desire to read. And each of them has been uh, terrific in their own way. Your podcast is, I think, probably will lure some resistant, reluctant readers who are daunted by the classics. Well, I hope so, because that was sort of the idea for me, because I'm daunted by the classics. And I always think, oh, this stuffy old book. And then you read it and you're like, oh, wait, this is actually kind of exciting. And there's fabulous writing and interesting characters and uh, terrible things happen. And I love in books when terrible things happen. Do you know what Wuthering means? Windy. Very good. I know. I looked that. I did not. Did you know that before? No, 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 of course not. No. How could anybody know that? Have you been trying to drop it into conversation a lot? I know, but I should. <laughs> I highly recommend it, you know? You will impress your friends and your fans. <laughs> In addition to all of your literary and performance chops, you were the host of two game shows, is that correct? Yeah. Did you know that Emily Bronte was the host of a game show once? Tell me more. Bob Barker was out of town doing one of those animal rescue events, and she had to fill in on The Price is Right. Uh -huh. You don't remember this? It was this, it was a week. Really? Yeah. So she, well, she kept encouraging contestants to guess a half penny or a farthing for the Whirlpool washer and dryer, so nobody got it. I don't remember this. That was a, such a bad. See, if I was doing stand up, that you'd be like, take it out, take it out. But I thought that today, <laughs> if you would indulge me, uh, maybe you could be a contestant on a very, very, very brief selected shorts game show, and I could be the host. Okay. So this is the lightning round, and the focus today is on anagrams. Great. Do you like Wordle? And mm -hmm. yeah, of course. Who doesn't love an anagram? Right. Everybody loves anagrams. So, okay, this first one is a book title. Can you find the classic novel in this anagram? 
weighing the hurts. Weighing the hurts? Yes, H-U-R-T-S. Yeah, that's, that's uh, Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights, absolutely. Doesn't it sound like the name of a book that could have been published like in the early 90s? Yeah, it actually does. Yeah. Yeah, a woman uh, going through a divorce and it's about the alimony settlement <laughs> that she's going to get. Right. That's great. That's right. Okay. Now, the second and last one. Can you find the modern master of writing and performance and comedy in this anagram? And I'll give you two anagrams of the same person. I came back in hall or label maniac hick. Maniac hick. Label maniac hick. Yes, but I would disagree with your descriptor of master of anything. Well, jack of all trades, perhaps. Jack of all trades, chameleon man <laughs> of comedy. <laughs> Dilettante, perhaps? <laughs> no. Renaissance. No. It's all Renaissance chameleon. No. It's already you've already you've already uh, over described to me. Merely journeyman. Well, I am impressed that you saw it right away because sometimes we can't see ourselves, Michael. <laughs> well, that is certainly true in my case. I'm really, really happy to talk to you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the free writing advice. I feel like I, I get I get at least one credit in a college seminar for that. Definitely. More than that. You're on your way. That was comic actor Michael Ian Black, who performed I Love Girl by Simon Rich. So that's our show. Two stories about the challenging nature of love, whether that love takes place in a world in which the wheel exists or hasn't been invented yet. The sweet agony of love, I suspect, has probably always been around. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.